vibration vests. I'm going to start this week with vibration vests because it intrigued my my understanding of the brain and how the brain works because obviously we have information. We we receive information through our senses, eyes, hearing, etc. and then our brain processes that. Our brain doesn't know its visual senses, its auditory senses. It doesn't know that. It just knows I've got information. I'm now going to process that. And what this vibration vest does, this uh, there's there's a couple of talks on YouTube about it. I found out about it on uh, on YouTube. I think it was a TED talk, and then I found another follow up uh, conversation about it. It's uh, from David Eagleman again. All links will be in the description um, or in the, in the comments of the of the podcast. But basically, this vibration vest allows you to grab vibrations and you feel those vibrations on your chest so you can feel the the sounds around you and what this allows people to do and what they've developed they've developed watches and wristbands and different things for deaf people to hear through feeling so they are still receiving information sensory information for their brain to process but it's not hearing it's not hearing vibrations that they're receiving it's vibrations on their body now, this this does sound a little bit out there, a little bit what um, to start with. But when you actually think about it, what what the brain is doing is it's receiving these 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 felt vibrations on the vest and associating certain vibrations with certain sound waves, i.e., certain words, certain noises, and deaf people are being able to hear. And the same is being, I think, if I am understanding the research correctly, is being used for sight. Because when when you, you send out, kind of like a bat, you send out waves and it brings back in you, the, the sensors can obviously sense whatever's going on and the, the different pathways and the brain is then being able to kind of like see like a bat. Uh, so the vibration vest is something I know works. Uh, and I believe this is where the research has gone. And you can see, you can hear through these vibration vests and when you add this to another dimension, people that can hear and can see, you could use those vibration vests and link them up with potentially the internet. Imagine that you could have a, a ping on your left shoulder when there's a new bit of research for something or a certain pattern for someone's tweeted this or someone's tweeted that. And you could respond through those sort of ways of communicating. And this opens up such a wide wide range of thinking with how we can communicate because currently we communicate through written words through audio there's so much to communication but adding this this vibration vests allows touch to be more widely used because at the moment we have obviously written communication which sends text messages and emails and that goes all over the world but you don't really send touch and the same could be said for hearing like you can hear words you can hear voices you can record voices like i'm doing right now and it's it's heard across the across the planet because of the internet but vibrations you can't send vibrations but you do get push notifications in your phone so i guess you could class that as a, a sort of vibration send uh, uh, send uh, a vibration uh, type of communication but it's it's really interesting to see how science is using brain neuroplasticity uh, and and the way our, our brain works to receive information not necessarily knowing what the information is and then processing that in a different way and i think that's very similar to learning languages because languages are this it's still sound but is different types of sound. And when you look at the uh, linguists that study sounds, study languages, there are certain sounds that some cultures, some languages uh, use, certain uh, ways you use the tongue, way you use the, the, the mouth and the throat to create these different noises. And some languages are much better at creating certain sounds like ah, 
like the R, the rolling R, I can't do it, <laughs> but some languages have that, and it, it's, it creates a different sound for people to then interpret and use that information in different ways, which can increase uh, the likelihood of it being emotional or having a, a different sense, a different tone to whatever it is that you're saying, and tonality is massive in communication, especially spoken communication, body language, body language also has a tone, so communicating through vibration allows another another medium maybe it's going to overcomplicate communication even more uh, but it, it just adds another medium for communication in the world of of science and i i think it opens up the the prospect of those people that are like deaf or blind to see to hear and communicate through those mediums but also when you add it to people that already have the senses maybe heightened senses in other ways now when it comes to this sort of science, there is uh, there is a tendency sometimes for it to be marketed, and it's it suddenly gets this name of this way or this thing, and oh yeah, have you have you done that method? But this sort of science isn't a method; it's a tool. It's it's a physical tool that you can use. Whereas the Wim Hof method is something I'm thinking of. Uh, it's the Wim Hof method is it's just breathing. It's meditation. Yes, there are certain aspects to it that are slightly different, but there was a, a video, a, a really good video done by Medlife Crisis on YouTube uh, about the Wim Hof method and goes into depth uh, going forwards and backwards between the things. And I, the reason I watched the video was because I know what the Wim Hof method is. I know the science behind, behind it. I understand the science behind it. And I've researched meditation and breathing techniques. And I didn't understand the difference. And what Medlife Crisis basically went through is there isn't really a difference and something that i want to i want to reinforce with this is there was no evidence for the the named thing like the wim hof method there wasn't any evidence for it there was evidence for aspects of the wim hof method uh, that's used so for for humanity to name something after someone i think it needs to be either more in the natural sciences where there are facts and, and actual laws that you can do, like Einstein's theory of relativity, it's it's fairly factual. Whereas Wim Hof method is just a a different take, a different style of breathing. Basically, it's 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 breathing meditation, which has about been around for years and years and years, and there's not that much that's that's unique to it. Maybe cold water immersion, but cold water immersion also has a much longer history than Wim Hof. So he's combined different things together to create something that has been done in loads of different places. So yes, it's great for marketing. Yes, lots of people do it, and there are certainly benefits to it. But there's not necessarily evidence for that named thing. It's just there's evidence of lots of other things that support it uh, to to then give it its, its benefits and effects. Uh, and something that I will mention with the Wim Hof Method is some of the effects that are seen are either not... Uh, <laughs> there's not much of a significant difference. I'll get onto that in a minute. Not much of a significant difference in the results that are found or the results that are found are biased. They're, they're slightly biased in the way that they've been uh, manipulated and interpreted, potentially because of p-hacking or something in the, the stats world or something in the researchers. Or there, there could be a, a, a loads of different reasons. Mm, that, that's just generally trying to find the truth. I will get on to finding the truth later on because it's something that I've been looking into in science. But these methods, instead of just taking the method at face value and going, yes, the Wim Hof method does this, or no, the Wim Hof method doesn't do this, look at the science and look at the aspects, look at the mechanisms behind why it works, why doesn't it work, what could help, what might not help, uh, and, and then take a critical view 
on whatever the method is rather than just saying yes it works no it doesn't work and i want to re sort of like reinforce this point with a book that i mentioned uh, a few weeks ago now on the podcast which was matt walker's book on sleep now the book is amazing don't get me wrong it's great it brings up lots of good points but there are lots of factual errors in there there is lots of research in there that is misrepresented uh, and the interpretation of some of the data can be wildly misunderstood uh, and Lots of people have just regurgitated that information because they have trusted the source, which is perfectly valid. Why wouldn't you trust the source that's by a researcher in that field? Uh, but the, they, they've trusted the source and they've just regurgitated the information rather than doing their own research on the science behind it and looking at the mechanisms behind it, looking at the actual facts and the actual science behind it. When you look at the science behind it, he's not wrong, but he's not right either. He's manipulating the data to create a narrative that he wants to share in the book, which is totally valid. I would argue, not necessarily in his case, because he did say it's a scientifically backed book, which it's... It, I, I would argue it's not. Uh, <laughs> but it's the, the same thing applies to all of, all of the methods, all of the things that people want to try and do with habits. You need to look at the mechanisms or look at the primary sources of information for that, because using the sleep example, correlation causation there is a big difference between those two things and sleep correlation sleep debt correlation specifically uh it's it's correlated not caused and that's the big thing where uh the book grinded my gears a little bit uh, and moving back into this wim hof method the same sort of thing there is a correlation between wim hof and lots of different effects there is a correlation there in some people but there's not a causation effect going on in most of the cases and the causation i.e the mechanisms behind what is being seen that's that's in science that's been in science for years it's just not called that thing so that that's how i how I choose to approach a lot of these methods and a lot of these changes in behavior, I look at the mechanisms behind it. I go back to the primary sources of research to try and understand what is actually going on rather than just accepting this somewhat pseudoscience claim to performance increases. And knowing knowing the fundamentals like the like the the base understanding is something that in in stats in research just in practice in general is something that we need to understand and this was spoken about in the finding mastery podcast dawn staley uh, dawn staley statley I'm, I'm not sure how you say that uh, was talking about knowing the fundamentals before you move forwards and this is i actually blogged about this yesterday which i may bring up atomic questions you you need to understand the base questions the very fundamental questions before you can start exploring other things and when you look at research when you really dive into answering questions the Wim Hof method sleep you need to understand the base atomic questions i.e what is sleep debt what is this thing that we're going to study and when you look at social science and natural science something natural science is very good at is defining what something is this is a b c d and this is not a b c d f e f whatever um, whereas social science it's this thing that i'm going to call uh is whatever it is fatigue is something i'm looking into at the moment so fatigue is this thing and it is affected by all of this stuff yeah but what is fatigue what actually is it well this cognitive fatigue and then mental fatigue which are actually slightly different and then physical fatigue and then fatigability and there are perceived fatigue as well what is this thing answer the atomic questions before you can actually go and find out other correlations and causations and and this is something interesting to me when you look at the sleep sleep analogy uh, or sleep example what is sleep debt not getting enough sleep but how how can you measure that how do you quantify sleep debt well it's around 
like six and eight hours, seven and nine hours, four and eight hours. There's there's so many different variations of what it is that all the other answers are just correlations. Oh, we we think this and we think that, and that's one of the issues that a lot of people have with social science because they don't do the what is it questions, the the fundamental questions, knowing what it is, knowing the mechanisms behind something, or just defining something, having an answer to something that is testable, repeatable, and valid. Uh, now, I know in a lot of cases in social science you can't do this, but exploring that in some way, understanding the fundamentals as best we can before making claims, before saying, oh, there is a correlation between this and this. And I know there was a research study saying that chocolate, and this was a p-hacking study, but chocolate helps you lose weight. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. We know it doesn't. Uh, but that's what they found in the testing because of p-hacking. And what p-hacking basically is, is you just test so many variables that you're likely to get something that is significant. And it's sometimes it's not deliberate. Sometimes it's accidental, which is why we do multiple studies. We have peer reviews and why we need to try to repeat studies rather than just saying yeah that's a that's a significant difference leave it uh, we need repeated studies and that's a journal thing that's a published article paper issue um but yeah so so this p-hacking relation well hold on a minute we asked the fundamentals of of that that finding chocolate what is chocolate is chocolate like what calories are chocolate what is losing weight and defining all the factors that played a role in that study makes makes you look at it and go actually no that was just a correlation found uh, but you need to understand what fundamental questions to ask what the fundamental questions are and then actually find the answers to them once you've found answers to those fundamental questions you then have a, a flaw a root to build upon which is where some of the bigger more overarching answers come from and when you look at natural science that's how they've done it that's how Einstein and the rest of them built up on it they, they had the answers to the small questions and then they built up build up build up and then found the answer to the big question when you look at einstein and the 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 the, the findings that he found the the relative theory of oh i'm not a physicist but the the relative theory of all the rest of the stuff it took him years to do it because he had to answer the fundamental questions he had to find the answers to the atomic questions before he could start expanding out so he has a base he has a root he builds up on that if it falls apart he then has to build up a new base a new base so his base knowledge was massive in that one specific area so he could find the answer right at the top so all of the different uh, nuanced and and uh, different uh, yeah the the nuanced answers the nuanced use cases were all all had a rationale and answer to that could then be proved repeatable etc etc so finding those fundamentals is important and when you're learning when you're teaching the same thing applies know the fundamentals uh, and this this comes down to reading reading articles reading papers looking through papers because there are different ways to read them and this is something that I learned at, at university with reading papers reading academic articles you don't read it from start to finish that that's that's not what you do um and i i was listening to the survivor and thriving in thriving in higher education video uh is how to read a paper efficiently and what this person basically said was what i experienced don't read it from start to finish don't read introduction or don't read abstract and introduction then whatever the next section is, sometimes it's methods, sometimes it's a little bit more of a lit review, uh, and then you go to results, and you go to discussion, and then you go to conclusion. No, don't do not do that. Read read the abstract to see what it's about, then go down to the conclusion, and actually work out what was going on, to, get, to give you an understanding of what the paper's about, because you could be, you could be spending hours reading the paper, and 
the paper's actually not about what you wanted to what it, what you wanted to know. So find out what the conclusions were, then look at the introduction. So you sort of you get an overview of what the paper's about reading the abstract, then you get a better understanding of what the paper found and what the paper was looking at by reading the conclusion, then go back to the introduction to again to then get the answers to those questions, those atomic questions, those fundamental questions that they answered, i.e. what is this thing we're going to talk about? This is the current research about this thing that we're talking about. This is the question, this is the problem, this is the the thing that we're going to look at in this article, then go through it. Now, personally, for me as well, I actually skip the methods. So I'll go introduction, lit review, skip the methods, then go to results, have a quick look at the results, because I would imagine it's going to repeat the conclusion, which I've already seen, and then have a look at the discussion. Only then, once I fully understand everything that's going on, I understand the questions behind it, I understand the answers that they found, I understand the discussion points, potentially limitations, and all previous research, what they're going to do in, in future, once I understand all of that, I get a full understanding of what's going on, then I look at the methods. Because then I can see, okay, whoops, smack the table, because then I can see, okay, this this finding is valid or not valid, or maybe there's this thing that I didn't quite agree in the discussion, or there were, there were results and I wasn't expecting the results, so I'm going to have a look at the methods, how did you actually find that, where was that conclusion from? Uh, and this is this is where like science, just general scientific papers, there are flaws. And when you look at p hacking examples, about a third of published research articles are actually false. They're just wrong. Um, you could have a look at Veritasim's video about that, about why uh, most science research is wrong or sort of wrong. Uh, so it's 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 one of those things where we do the best we can with the knowledge that we have and this is where i think wikipedia and public note taking public sharing of information is so helpful because yes you'll have a couple of people that are just wrong they they just don't know but more often than not when you have multiple people sharing multiple views on the same question the same answer you're going to have professional researchers in different fields you're going to have science so Looking at science is great, but science is limited because p-hacking and because re repeatable studies aren't shared and publicly spoken about. You can look at a study from 2005, find loads of answers. Okay, that's great. Then find another study that actually contradicts it. You And then if you look at Wikipedia, oh, there's loads of other studies that have said different things but from different fields. But the, the studies that you originally looked at, they, they didn't see those relations. Or you could use a tool like ResearchRabbit or uh, what's the other one? I think uh, oh, there's another tool, but I don't remember because it's not as good as ResearchRabbit. But ResearchRabbit uses later links, uh, similar work, uh, earlier work, later work. And you can find those relations to other papers that answer similar questions, but in different fields, which allows them to be published. Uh, but Wikipedia gives you all the answers from like everywhere because there's people from all the different fields and Wikipedia finding a Wikipedia page on something is great to start answering those atomic questions once once you've answered those atomic questions and you have the fundamental questions there and you're going to explore those questions uh, then it's gone <laughs> then, then Wikipedia not so trustworthy and then you need to have a look at the sciences but Wikipedia is a great place to start the research, to find the different papers, the different articles from different fields a lot of the time, uh, to get answers to questions that may may have answers in different fields. And one of the one of the most obvious examples I can think of right now in my mind is learning. When you look at learning, well, Veritasium, Derek Muller did his PhD in physics about learning physics through um, myths. 
myths and misconceptions in videos, so multimedia. But most of the research in learning in multimedia is in tech companies and in technology. But when you look at learning, or most of learning and pedagogy science is actually in sports coaching and, and teaching. But sports coaching is specific to sport, whereas teaching is specific to whatever subject it is. So there are lots of different domain areas that have answers to the same sort of question, but you would never, most of those papers don't reference papers from other fields. I haven't seen Derek Muller's papers uh, referenced in any of the research that I looked into in multimedia uses of uh, education, in, in sports coaching specifically, because they, they don't read in, in the field of physics to try and find answers about multimedia education. It's just not there. So looking at Wikipedia pages, looking at public notes, allows you to get an understanding of the broader uh, context around the questions that you're trying to get answers to which uh, how to do research overly sarcastic productions they spoke about this they do lots of research into historic historic things and they use wikipedia as their bounce off page they have a question they go to wikipedia they go down to the bottom and they find the references they have a look around and that's what i do i go to wikipedia i go to a lot of public notes i go to youtube videos sometimes a lot of youtube videos just repeat a book and i'm like okay i'll go find uh, someone that's spoken about the book uh, but you go and find those sources from all of the public notes and places and then you can really dial down in the questions that you actually want to answer. Uh, now, cognitive load theory is something I recently did that to. I recently went and I was like, okay, cognitive load theory. I know it's a thing, but I, I, I that's about it. I know it's a thing. Now, if you want to watch my video about my research in cognitive load theory, you can. I didn't go into the specifics about cognitive load theory because there is so much that I learned, um, but you can see my process in the video. And essentially, what I did is I went to Google Scholar, I typed in cognitive load theory found three articles, then put them into ResearchRabbit, found some other associated articles, some more recent, some uh, in the past, because finding articles in the past, typically, because there aren't that many, you find the primary sources that a lot of other articles reference, which is what I found, and then I went through those. And what I found reading those articles is more questions, obviously, but I found more questions and I found more things that just confirmed what other people had said. So lots of the people that have uh, said things in YouTube videos, in blogs, in articles. And when I say articles, I'm talking about website articles, not papers. So the website articles and in public notes and just generally on the news. A lot of what people were saying was true, but they were missing out certain pieces of information, which in the academic papers I was actually finding. So I was using all of those public resources to find find the different answers to questions that I, I I had enough information to know where I could find more information. Now I'm never going to find more information on all the different areas because uh, I'm I'm not researching cognitive load theory right now. But it's it's having the the know how to go. Okay, here's an answer to a question. It might be right. It might have limited information in there, but it's a start. And that's what I use public notes for. Public notes for finding answers to get a place to start to move forwards and when you have multiple people referencing different references publicly then you know okay there must be some validity to this this is just an intuitive thing it's not factual but when you have someone saying okay cognitive load theory this revolves around in a uh, cognitive load which has intrinsic load extraneous load and i don't know how to say genius genius load um th those three different types of load and i found four different articles from completely different fields all saying the exact same thing so i know it must be true that there's three now i don't know if it's actually true looking at the papers and then when i went into a paper i did confirm that but i found four different articles 
like website articles saying the same thing from different fields. So they've probably got different, uh, they've probably got their answers um, from different fields, which allows me to sort of span out a little bit. And Wikipedia said the same thing. Wikipedia had some of the references that I actually used, like papers. Uh, and when you go into the papers, a lot of the papers will confirm things that are shared publicly, but also give the caveats. And that is where the additional information, the narratives, the the, the information that I think should be shared publicly is, um, but papers are hard to get a hold of. And something I found in cognitive load theory is measuring load. So lots of people that speak about cognitive load theory on the internet, publicly and free, they don't speak about measuring load and how difficult measuring load is. A lot of people talk about, okay, we've got cognitive load, we don't want to overload ourselves cognitively, we can't have too much in our, in our working memory because we can't remember it, so we need to store things in long-term memory, create schemas, then use those schemas in working memory, etc, etc. But how do you know you're going to cognitively overload if you don't know how difficult the task is? Do you put an arbitrary number on the task? Because your prior knowledge of whatever that thing is is going to impact how difficult that task is. So, for example, you know lots of stuff about topic A. You have, let's put an arbitrary number on it, you have five amounts of knowledge in that, and the task is ten difficulty. There's a gap of five. Your working memory allows for five. We are good. We're not cognitive cognitively overloaded. However, there are two other people in your class that have a base level of two, difficulty still being 10, and then we have a, a base level of seven, difficulty still being 10. Well, the person with a base level seven, three, okay, this is pretty easy. It's, I don't have to spend that much that's men, that much mental effort. The working, working memory is pretty easy, but that person that really doesn't understand stuff at two, 10, wow, eight, I've only got a working memory of seven. My working, I can't remember what's going on. I'm lost. I'm cognitively overloaded. But the arbitrary number of 10, how do you measure that? How do you measure the arbitrary number? And I assumed that the the measurement is 10 is going to be the same for all three students, but it may not be 10 for all three students because of their prior load. Because of their prior load, that for, for the person with two, it may actually be a 15. Whereas the person with seven, it may actually be seven. So they're not doing a thing. It's just easy. It's already in long-term memory. So that task had seven for the person that knew it, 10 for the, the middle person with a, a 5 understanding, and then a, a 15 for the person with 2, because it was just way beyond them, just did not understand enough, because they didn't have the answers to the fundamental questions. And measuring that load is so difficult, and if that is so difficult, how do you then measure performance? Measuring the performance after they've learned something, and finding out these measures and what is it, finding those fundamental answers to what is it that we're measuring, what is it that we're trying to find, well, suddenly brings in another another context to answering those questions. So when people talk about this publicly on YouTube videos and the rest of it, and they reference it, they're referencing elements that they want to use. They're, they're referencing the parts that they understand or parts that we sort of know, they're guessing at. And again, this is social science, but they don't speak about either the sources or the exceptions and the nuanced exceptions and the what if scenarios. Uh, and interoception is another one of those things. Interoception, is, I, I got this from Andrew Huberman's podcast about optimized brain body functions. And interoception is basically where we perceive our own bodily functions like the heart rate, our breathing, uh, blood pressure. We, we feel that we don't cognitively think about some of the things um, that we interocept. Uh, 
but we we, we perceive we, we know okay we're getting stressed our heart rate's increasing we like sweaty palms and those sort of things and we can we can perceive our own body we read our own body to then move forwards and when we do get stressed we feel that we're stressed or we feel that we tense and those interoceptive uh, senses can be better in some people worse in other people but how do you measure that what is it again going back to measuring things how do you measure someone's interoception because you 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 can't go into them and be like okay that's what you feel that's how much you feel it's it's a case of measuring other metrics that could relate to this thing so Find, finding those those base answers in social science is very, very difficult. So when we're speaking about it, instead of just saying, oh yeah, this is a thing, and, and speaking about it as if it's fact, as if it's a natural science, which I don't think we can do, we need to bring in the nuances, bring in the exceptions, so that a, a fuller, more uh, well-rounded understanding of the thing is, is spoken about. Now, when, when we look at cognitive load theory, interoception, procrastination comes to mind procrastination where you, you don't you, you're, you're not feeling it you know yeah and, and and as that deadline approaches oh okay we, we could talk about parkinson's law but i'm not going in that direction but that that's kind of where it is you, you put it off and you put it off and you put it off and then suddenly bam interoception okay i'm feeling stressed i need to get this thing done send that signal to your brain okay let's get this thing done cognitive load theory kind of goes out the window at this point because cognitive load says it like once you once you're doing loads of work and you're you're mentally drained you can't focus that much but some people do tons and tons of work in like a couple of days and they they get it done it's not their best work but they they thrive under pressure and there was a, a TED talk i believe it's a TED talk by Tim Urban uh, inside the mind of a master procrastinator it's one of the most popular TED talks out there and he speaks about the panic monster and the panic monster is basically your your body you you're sensing your body the interoception you're sensing oh, okay we're getting close to the deadline now i'm getting a little bit stressed i'm getting worried i need to drive and move forwards and, and really get this thing done so you sort of overload all of the, these these things that we've been speaking about, the cognitive load theory, the knowing the fundamentals, reading and order, you sort of forget all of that stuff and you're, right, I just got to get this thing done. And you skip some of the things that you would procrastinate about because you <laughs> you haven't got the time to do that anymore uh, and, you, and you just get it done. And this is where bringing in that little context, oh, well, cognitive load theory is A, B, C, D. What, what if this... What if that? And again, going all the way back to Einstein, the example I used with Einstein, he found the answers to all of those atomic questions, the what if questions. What if you're procrastinating and the the so-called panic monster is coming out? Does cognitive load theory still work then? If it doesn't, okay, we need to find more atomic answers before we can move forwards with these questions. How do you find those answers? Lots and lots and lots of testing. Uh, and, and I mean, the testing doesn't really finish, but this is what I'm saying with social science and explaining social science uh, in the public is when, when you are explaining them, we, I think we need to explain more about or at least acknowledge uh, in the explanations the different nuances that can arise with the conversations that are going on. So things aren't overlooked or aren't misinterpreted like the sleep book and the sleep studies because sleep deprivation is a therapy. But no one seems to speak about it. Everyone says sleep deprivation is bad. Sleep deprivation is a, a global epidemic, pandemic, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but sleep 
deprivation therapy is really useful for some people. And talking about sleep debt and saying, oh yeah, you really need sleep debt can cause people stress and actually <laughs> make it even worse because they're so stressed that they need to get to sleep. And you're thinking, okay, you need to add this narrative in because it's not factual. It's not a natural science. It's a social science. It's a combination of natural science and social science. So include the exceptions. Include the nuances and make sure it's understood and not misunderstood and you're not manipulating the data if it's a correlated result rather than a caused result um and this is where writing for yourself i think needs to needs to play a part in understanding things uh, this is actually this was uh, taken from andy mutashak's uh, note i can't remember what the note was called but writing for yourself essentially means instead of writing for an audience which i think a lot of people do they they change their writing style, they change how they're going to write, they change what they're going to include for an audience. Instead of writing for an audience, writing for someone to read it, write for yourself. Write for your own understanding of something. So when someone reads it, they're reading your understanding, your current understanding, and all the small nuanced areas, or at least put contextual information in there so that if there is a nuance about it, they can go and have a look at it. And this is why Tools for Thought are so powerful right now. I know most of my listeners are going to be biased towards Tools of Thought, but when when there are those nuances well, what about this and what about that you can just add a page link wherever that goes whatever tool you're using it could be a hyperlink to a simple page or just a website to to somewhere that answers those questions but adding in those contextual pieces of information in the written work because you've written for yourself sleep deprivation is good but sleep deprivation sleep deprivation is good no sleep deprivation is bad but sleep deprivation therapy is good for some people just add the inner page a little bit of context context a little bit of context so people know what's going on but most people well i've seen in public anyway don't include those things because they're writing for an audience they have a target audience in mind i'm going to write for this person this person wants to know about this thing they're not writing for themselves to understand the topic. They're, it's almost like writing, I, I'm going to associate this to school, it's kind of like you're writing for an essay. <laughs> you're writing for the examiner. You're writing, the, you're writing the essay for the examiners to give you the good mark rather than writing your notes down so you understand what's going on. And this is where I see lectures happening. The lecturers write the, the PowerPoints for this beginner that doesn't know what's going on. So the beginner knows exactly what, what the lecturer is talking about or vice versa, the beginner has no idea what they're talking about because the lecturer thought the beginner was way advanced. And they they pick one person, they pick a, a, a target audience, and that's who they write for. And instead of writing for an understanding, a general understanding around the question, the topic, the answer, so write for yourself. Write for yourself so you understand what's going on, and anyone else that reads it also gets an understanding of what you understand rather than them reading what you want them to read. I know that could have got a little bit uh, psyche in there when you're thinking about that but write for yourself and give contextual information in there when you do have the questions because we all have questions we all have those those side those side tree rabbit hole questions that we want to go down but when you're writing for an audience most of the time people don't talk about those rabbit holes and if they do talk about the rabbit holes the rabbit hole just becomes the article which can be useful but if you want an overview, that's not very useful, which is where Tools for Thought, I think, have a place with uh, public public note-taking, public articles. And when you read an academic paper, you want to kind of go off sometimes, and that's where the tabs appear. You read a paper, oh, that's good, I'll find a paper on that, and oh, that's good, I'll find another paper on that, and you look at your tabs, oh, I've got 70 tabs up. <laughs> um, whereas if you're using a Tool for Thought, you can just go down the rabbit hole very quickly and then come back again. And 
that is where the power is, I think, when it comes to sharing notes, writing publicly, finding fundamental answers to the atomic questions, moving forwards in that with, with, with knowledge management and note taking. But before we can do any of that, we need to build trust. <laughs> we need to build trust. Uh, now, I'm going to go to Finding Mastery again. Chris Bosch, basketball player, talks about building trust in a team, building trust in a community. And, the, I mean, he's, he spoke about it in a basketball sense, in a, in a team sense, building trust so you can communicate backwards and forwards and say, I didn't like how you played then. Can we talk about this? I would prefer you doing this. You prefer me doing that. Okay, yeah. And then and you work out those problems. You work out those issues. And I think it's the same with public research, public papers, articles, sharing knowledge, we need to be able to be critical about what other people have put out. And critical in a way that starts a conversation rather than it threatens their livelihood, marketing, sales, whatever. Um, and my, an example that springs to mind that I, I will relate to um, the, the sleep book is a, a guy called uh, and Andre Guzzi, I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, did an article about... Uh, Matthew Walker's book and it was a great article and it went over a lot of the the critiques about just the first chapter and there was loads of research put into it and some people just they, they battered it down now I know people are gonna just ah oh, no no you're, you're not the researcher you're not the the, the the number one published author on this thing whatever okay fine but you still if, if, you, if you're gonna be a scientist or use a scientific method you need to accept that there are going to be some people that are going to critique it and instead of just shrugging it off have a look at it give give it the, give it the the time it deserves especially with someone that has done the amount of research that Audrey did uh, Andre did into it he did like over 100 hours of research into sleep research and i i followed a lot of that <laughs> like i found his research after i'd done a lot of the research anyway and a lot of my findings were the same as his so i kind of used a couple of his research uh, found a couple of research articles from his research as well and sort of used those in mind but at the end of the day, we we need to trust, to some extent, what people have pet out, um, but we need to trust that they are going to be open to critique. So when you do ask them a question, and this is where I know social media can be difficult, but when people ask questions to videos, to articles, to papers, to blogs... Yes, some of them are going to be quote quote silly questions. I don't think there's a silly question, uh, but some of them may look silly or they just haven't read something. Yes, I understand that, but giving an answer to them, just just a quick answer or just a quick direction. You can go have a look on here. You could go have a look here or just directing to them to a place, a resource that has lots of different answers for them to go and explore gives gives it uh, gives them the onus to go and find the answers. Now, some people aren't going to go find the answers. I understand that, and I accept that, but some people have really good questions or really good critiques about something that I think needs to be surfaced, and that's where the conversation about science uh, should happen, and there there are communities around that have those conversations but the communities are so separated you have the academic community the talking papers you have the public community that are just talking in just groups like oh what's this and what's that and how do you help this and the the, the public just general questions and then there's sort of like the middle group of the people that are researching sometimes it's the students uh, sometimes it's the the researchers or the interns and the people that are just interested in the topic or maybe it's a parent that's got a, a child that's got this health issue and they've gone into that domain or maybe it's a sports coach that wants to understand how to what the relative age effect is there are there are people all all around these worlds that have everyone's got answers to someone else's question most of the time 
Um, but the communities aren't put together. They're so separated. So bringing those communities together, I think, is what a lot of the, the front runners should be doing. Like people that are writing books like Matthew Walker, build a community somewhere about sleep. I don't see a sleep community. I can't find one uh, that, that speaks about sleep. So the, the, it's, it's just, here's a thing, read it, understand it if you can, and then do loads of research. That, that, that doesn't help. Yes. Uh, we, I, I think it, a community is kind of like an FAQ board, FAQ board for, for learning and understanding. But, but the the public notes, if people shared their public notes, you'd have an FAQ board basically in the notes because each person would have their own, oh, this is what they found, this is what they found. And, and that's basically what, what Wikipedia is. People asking questions, someone else answering those questions. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of where I want to want to wrap it up because... We, we need to have the fundamental answers to atomic questions, expand that out, share that information, get critiques on that information, and, and move forwards with that with conversations. And those conversations need to be happening in communities somewhere. Uh, and just, I mean, all you really need is just a moderator, maybe maybe a Wikipedia community, <laughs> a Wikipedia forum somewhere um, that's, that's useful. I haven't looked into Wikipedia. Maybe there is a forum. Maybe that's something I'll have a look at. But yeah, uh, hopefully yeah, I, I got you thinking. Uh, and uh, I'll see you all next week.